My guest today is Katie Howell, Chief Executive of Immediate Future, a social media agency based in London. Often called in as the UK expert on social by TV, radio and the press, Katie appears regularly on BBC News, Victoria, Derbyshire and Reuters, as well as featuring in The Telegraph, The FT and The Guardian. She's considered the fourth most influential social media marketing expert, named one of the 25 women who have made an outstanding contribution to digital by the drum and was honoured to be amongst the top 100 Asian tech entrepreneurs in the UK. She speaks at conferences, runs masterclasses and guests lectures at two universities. She's also co-authored three books on social. Her expertise lies in helping brands deliver significant impact by breaking the social boring, using social data to springboard creative that delivers growth to business. Her agency works with brands including LastMinute.com, Princess Cruises, Selfridges, Mission Foods, Google, Diageo, JD Williams, Fujitsu, Sony Music and many more. They win industry awards every year for their smarts and innovation in social media. Katie has a wealth of experience, and in this episode, we dig into how social media can be used to underpin and be fully integrated into the experience your customers have with your brand and your organization throughout their journey. We discuss how social media has evolved, how to safely manage interactions in regulated industries, and the importance of paid-for social media. We even touch on the role of influencers. And if you want to take a step back and really challenge yourself to consider the role of social media in the experience your customers have of your organization, whatever sector you're in, this is the episode for you. So let's welcome Katie. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much indeed for uh, for agreeing to come on. Absolutely great to see you and um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation on this freezing cold winter's morning. It'll probably be spring by the time we uh, get this out there, so hopefully a bit, bit warmer by then, but uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So as I said in the introduction, you're CEO of Immediate Future, which is a social media consultancy, and you're an advisor, a speaker, and a lecturer. And I'd also just make you blush a bit by saying, you know, you've been recognized for your work. You've been named amongst the top 100 Asian tech entrepreneurs, I believe, in the UK, and also named one of the top 25 women to have shaped the digital industry by the drum. So prestigious awards and recognition for the work you've been doing. Could you just start off by just giving us a little bit of your story on your own words and um, in terms of your career path and how you've ended up doing what you're doing and with those accolades under your belt? Yeah, I'm one of those um, older people in the industry that's had quite a wiggly career. So I, my qualification, I've got a Bachelor of Science in Genetics and Plant Sciences, came out of the industry, got into sales because I entered the industry as or entered the workforce just as a recession hit in the 80s. And then sort of bumbled my way through getting qualified in marketing, ending up at DDB, which was then BMP DGB, which is, for those that don't know, was at the time a very large TV and advertising agency, which then split a couple of years into me being there into OMD and DGB. And I jumped ship into OMD, but started to get into digital in the early 90s. I managed to have a couple of kids in the process and then madly after my second daughter was born decided to go it alone and I because I spotted this opportunity I thought how interesting that 
consumers and customers are having conversations on message boards and in blogs and on places like MySpace, (laughs) (laughs) if we remember MySpace. How interesting, I thought. And I thought I could persuade people or persuade brands that this is a great place to start really communicating with their customers on a very, in a much more meaningful way. And we're just getting out of that dot-com bubble and still just getting away at this stage from from real brochureware sites and everything was built in Flash and other horrendous programs. But anyway, so I did so and I, I was freelance for a couple of years, got so big, I kept winning clients and we won I won because it was only me, EMI. And at the time, I, you know, I had two little ones running around and working insane hours to manage 20 clients. And I, I promise you, I fell over. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the process of falling over, my mother, who ran her own agency back in the day, said to me, you've got a choice. You either cut back on the clients you have or you get some help. So I got some help. So we actually incorporated in uh, 2003, I think it was, but didn't really become an agency till 2004, at which we launched Immediate Future, the social media agency. Of course, it wasn't social media because nobody called it that then. No, no, no. No. (laughs) So it was digital PR and blogger relations and all sorts of made-yuppy words because we didn't know what to call it. But, you know, we did our first campaign on Twitter in 2006. We were the first in the UK to set up a client Facebook page when Facebook pages came out, which was terribly scary because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And now we are about to turn 17 years old, working with well-known brands, but not normally the top of the tree. We work with the brands that want to make a difference. The ones that we, in the olden days, before the dot-coms all came along, would be called challenger brands. And still by some of us, the oldies is called the challenger brand. And we stick to anything. We are the experts. So instead of following the fads, although social is terribly faddy, we also are very grounded in our marketing, our comms experience. So the, the people that work at Immediate Future are crossing that bridge between consultancy and doing. And the reason is that we want to talk to brands that are serious about social media the ones that actually want business impact, not the ones that go, I want to increase my followers on Instagram because at that stage, they're too baby for us. They're too almost naive, whereas we want to deliver something that makes a difference to the business. So we're solely focused on social media. It means we do everything from paid through to strategy, through to creative, and then, of course, execution and getting out, which could be just as challenging. And our mantra is very much break the social boring. It's our DNA, which is there is an awful lot, and dare I say it on your podcast, of crap content out there, stuff in our feeds from businesses that is actually, it goes beyond being bland. It goes into being irritating and Mm. every reason not to follow that brand and quite negative. And our approach is that Brands need to have a personality. Mm. They need to be something. They need to stand for something. That personality doesn't always have to be, you know, fun and childish. It can actually be quite serious, but it needs to, you need to resonate with your customer. And so that's why we work with brands that are serious about social, because it's brands that spot that opportunity. And so stop the social boring. I mean, I mean, that. I think one thing that's come out, Every time I speak to somebody on this series, 
all about customer centricity and obviously you're centric to your customers insofar as you know you're, you're very keen on working with people that want to make a difference and, and what they're trying to do but so that sounds like a rallying cry it sounds like a purpose and I'm assuming that everyone within the organization that you're running is completely behind that and you recruit on that basis and everything else because I think it's so important to have clarity of purpose and again I think just about everybody that's come on the show so far has said something like that it's very similar Oh, absolutely. We live and breathe to break the social boring. Uh, I'll give you an interesting example. We're interviewing because we're, we're in growth. We're interviewing for new staff. And the interviewee asked, the candidate asked me, you know, what do we stand for and what are our values? And we have three values, curiosity, collaboration and courage, because you need to be brave to do what we do. And then we did a, a kind of one of those uh, meet and greet the team type things. And I just sort of sat in the background, you know, so that the team can get to know that that candidate well. And my team just said everything I said. <laughs> you know, when you know your most junior member of staff is just almost word for word saying what you said, you just know you've got that culture running through <laughs> your business. I was so I was beaming away silently in the background like some very creepy old lady. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Okay, look, let's dive into it. So you're a social media consultancy. What, what does that mean? I mean, who are your customers and what do you do for them? Because I'm sure not everybody listening will really understand. They'll understand the words, what you're saying, but not necessarily what it means in practice. What do you do? Okay, when we talk about social media, we, we don't talk about things like YouTube. What we're talking about, the big four, which are fairly obvious, which is, you know, the Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and plus all the peripherals. So when we work on a global basis, that could include Line, for instance, over in Japan, or it could include, at the moment, Clubhouse, which is driving me insane. Our aim is to work with brands who, yes, want to make a difference, but also who are fairly recognizable. So we've worked with you know, Sony Music and One Direction on the B2C side. We've worked with IBM, Thomson Reuters, Fujitsu on the B2B side. We do FMCG. So we've worked with Diageo and uh, well, Mission Foods, which is tacos and tortillas. You know, so a very broad range of clients. But you can see they all sit at sort of tier two to tier five. Mm -hmm. These are brands that have big ambitions who want to take the number one slot. I often say to people, it's the, with the seven up to the Coca-Cola. <laughs> right, right, yeah, okay. that one, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're hungry for market share. They often have really, really interesting stories to tell, but don't know how to tell them. And they have somewhat of an established brand. It can often be a brand that, that needs a bit of revamping, to be honest with you, but so that it works in digital. And we're seeing a lot of them coming out the woodwork since 2020s happened because they've had to move faster in a way yeah. that they, they've not been able to in the past so what do we do we basically take them through a whole journey it usually takes some time for, as i said from paid and strategy and and the kind of top end of that kind of process all the way through to you know we can deploy but we also work very hybrid you know a great example is our work with cats protection where they actually have designers and creatives in-house. So we work around them and fit around them to help them either deploy some new stuff on TikTok or to develop their strategy or understand what's up and coming and that they need to talk about right now. Okay, so you're you're looking at the whole brand architecture on social. You're then looking at content. You're looking at campaigns. The whole through the, through the line, as it used to be called in my my days of, of marketing, but on social, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think we have to because we're very niche. 
Yeah. So we're very deep. And that yeah. means that we're very expert and it's the only thing we do. We don't yeah. we don't build websites and we don't deal with broad branding and we don't do, yeah. we don't do anything else. We are experts in our field. Okay. Okay, interesting. And let me just reflect back on something you said at the beginning. So you you talked there about brand personality. Some of the brands that we work with, I mean, we work with a lot of big, for example, asset managers. We work with big pharma companies, what have you. And quite often when we're having conversations at different parts of that conversation, social sort of comes up sometimes, but very rarely. They kind of um, not necessarily reject it, but don't necessarily see it's something that they have to manage or because they don't have a lot of uh, traffic and flow there. And, and also their brands don't necessarily lend themselves to a particularly whimsical rendition of things. I mean, do you work with brands like that? And, and therefore, I suppose, how does your comments sit in terms of brand personality in that kind of environment? Yeah, we do. And we've done some strategic work with Bayer, for instance. First things first, when I talk about personality, that personality doesn't doesn't have to be a 16-year-old Generation Zer jumping around on TikTok, okay? Just to yeah. be really clear. And it doesn't have to be innocent drinks that everybody talks about. Actually, your personality can be one of expertise. Right. Why does that matter? Well, simply, in the world we live in today, trust is your biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. And that trust is, spans both B2B and B2C. So yeah. regardless of who you are, you need to know your purpose and your purpose on social translates into personality. Now, that personality, as I said, does not have to be all frivolous, but it does need to connect in a more intimate way because social is more intimate, in a more in the moment way. And social media, particularly for brands that you're talking about, where the trust element is a huge issue, that is the side of the business where social can play its hardest and its best because it is not about saying whoa here we are aren't we good with all the virtue signaling we saw last year which no one believes but Mm -hmm. it is that relentless everyday nudge nurture towards look at this this is where we do good work look at this this is how we help brands or help other companies look at this, this is how we help you, dear consumer. And it is relentless and consistent. And it is based around your purpose and your branding and your messaging. And that has incredible penetration into the behaviors of your customer base. And that is the bit that's often missed about social. It is this incredibly in the moment, intimate experience that if you get it right, if you do it well, will actually have much, much more impact on your customer base than a TV campaign or a press ad or anything else. It plays beautifully into that one part, which is being in front of your nose. <laughs> yeah, 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 literally, yeah. Okay, now that's really clear. Thank you. That that's uh, that certainly sparked a few thoughts in my head as you were talking there. So, I mean, we, we do a lot of work in customer experience within Pen. We design customer journeys. We we look at sort of transforming the end to end journey, and quite often. We sort of have social media almost as a, a channel, if you like, that flows through that. And and um, I, I get a sense from what you're saying, that's probably not quite the right approach. We, we should be thinking of it differently. I mean, how, how do you guys think of it? Do you design very differently in social in, in terms of the experience? I suspect the design is, is more personal because it's a voice, not a 
message, although messages sit behind the voice. This is the way to think about social. It's the oil in your engine. So all your other channels are moving parts. Okay. Social media will make them work better. Right. So that means it's multiple touch point. So what I mean by that is if your social is working really well, so will your search demand. So will your open rates. We've seen open rates double because of social media. Right. Yeah, because even we as an agency run an ABM campaign through social media that targets the people we're targeting via email because it increases our open rates because it builds trust. People recognize the brand. They go, oh, that's come from immediate future. So think of because everybody is on social media, because it's always in people's feeds and because access is, you know, every day, then I think that one of the challenges is to kind of squash that down and say, okay, what is it we're trying to achieve? And where else do we need to measure? What, you know, is it that we want people to go from here to here? Where do we want them to go? And the biggest mistakes we see is that social is created as a separate channel. And I'll give you an example of where that the paucity of that happens, which is I see something in my feed. I just, in fact, I went and looked at something the other day, which is a sofa. And I'm, we're looking at buying a new sofa because my dogs have made a mess of our sofa. I'm looking at buying a, a sofa. I see this wonderful ad with people bouncing on sofas and thinking, that's great. That, that works for me. You know, something a bit robust. Click on the learn more in my Facebook page and get asked a whole series of questions. I'm on my right. mobile phone in front of the telly. Yeah. I click out, I leave. And it, the same works in B2B, you know, being sent, you know, going from, we work with tech brands, for instance, and they have a terrible habit of doing this, which is creating wonderful white papers and then making you give your inside leg measurements and shoe size in order to get that to work. In social, that's not how people think. And so understanding how the journey flips out of social and back into social is really important. It's really important. And it's often missed because social is treated as this channel where you have to put something out and either it's PR stories, you've got some intern putting pictures of cats out. You know, it's just, it's, you know, I'm sorry if I'm disparaging, but it's, it's hugely frustrating. Yeah. The low barrier to entry in social media that, that means that there is an incredible amount of rubbish out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's interesting. So let me sort of go in a slightly different direction, but go a little bit deeper still. So again, when I'm thinking of engagements that we have with organisations, it, it kind of, social tends to fall into one of three, if not more than one of three categories. It's it's listening. So it's kind of like they, they think of social as, I need to listen what people are saying about us, and I need to potentially do something about bad things. There's sort of proactive engagement, i.e. probably a little bit more the stuff you're talking about the oil in the engine thinking about how you might oil the wheels a bit and maybe get people to think differently about the brand and then the sort of more extreme end of it if you like is is an operational servicing channel where people are trying to service customers through social media and, and again I, I don't know if that's a, a reasonable sort of three categories in terms of the types of usage i mean Stupid question, maybe, but do do you see one of those things works better than others in in social, or is it um, is it that it, it depends on the organisation and what they're trying to achieve strategically? I mean, a, a bit of a broad question, really, I suppose. But I'm just trying to get my head around what is social really good for, and is the answer it, it's good for everything, and you have to give everything a try, or, or, or you know, how do you see it? I think it, I think exactly that it depends on the organisation. For some businesses. They are challenged by what they can say, particularly regulated businesses, 
Right. And listening does play a huge part of that, although listening can be broader than that. The marketing we talked about, but but on customer service, for some brands, that is a core channel for customer service, whether they like it or not. The fact that they often do it really badly is, is an irrelevance, but the reality is that as customers, we turn to social because we're frustrated yeah. or fed up yeah. or something yeah. has gone wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that element needs a lot of work, but it, but it, it belies something deeper. All of these three things belie something deeper, which is that in the modern world, we are moving rapidly to what I'd call inside-outside organizations. It's a made-yuppie word by Katie, but, uh-huh. but it's one of the things is we want more, we demand more from the businesses we purchase from, whether that's B2B or B2C. We want ethics. We want a company that all seems to be singing from the same hymn sheet. You asked me at the beginning, you know, do my staff, you know, believe in our values? Do they believe in in our mission and our vision? But that applies beyond smaller agencies like us. It applies to every business right now. And if you look at the trends, you look at where, you know, the big swings in behaviours, which you can really see on social media, you can see how much it matters that a business is, you know, pushing towards sustainability, that it is developing DNI programs, that it is inside out. Our trust is, is at an all-time low. And one of the challenges with that, Neil, is that the persuasion of trust is is not just about consistency. It's also about the voices of our employees, whether right. they be customer service or our engineers. You know, they, it is that behavior that changes how we feel about a brand. So mm. social is, is just, it's just the bit of the very edge of an iceberg of behavioral change. Okay. And how has it evolved over the years? I mean, I, I'm just, I'm conscious. I mean, when you and I first met, we, we did a small piece of work together in my previous company where we were looking at sentiment and we were looking at the extent to which the organization, I won't say who it was, but their brand values were coming across. And we were looking at sort of whether customers were saying things that were attuned to their their brand values. It was a fascinating piece of work at its, of its time, I think. And I got a sense at the time we were a little bit ahead of ourselves because people once they didn't believe it, but they struggled to kind of make the connection of the kind of almost emotional stuff that you're talking about there. I mean, how has it evolved and where has it got to? Because you talked about companies being forced in 2020 to perhaps go a bit quicker, but it, has there been an evolutionary path that's clear in terms of where it's come from and where it's going to, or, or is it kind of, is it always been the same in terms of how it's used? I think there are those that do and those that don't. There's definitely a separation. So the brands that are more forward thinking and some of them, you know, the startups that are appearing on the scene really understand how to listen to their customers. And they're not frightened of understanding the metrics and the measures that they need to apply, nor are they scared of really digging into the emotional frameworks that people are playing into i mean even simple things we use a tool called brand watch who came out with a really interesting bit of insight at the beginning of this year about people's new year's resolutions which for the last you know previous four or five years has been you know go on a diet give up alcohol you know all the usual new year's resolutions but this year it's to 
spend more time with friends and family, Mm. number Mm. one. Number two is, I think it was learning and development. Number three was read more. I mean, mean, giving up alcohol and food and all that was way down on the list. And what you're seeing is that that swing of behavioral science. The brands that are using that to the best of their ability understand that obviously social media is an inflection point. Okay, Mm. so, you know, it will show you the best and worst in a way, of what's going on. So it's not the tool that will make all your business decisions, but it will show you where those nuggets of gold are hidden. And it will give you a temperature check. We tend to use sentiment much, much less. In fact, basically, uh, over the years, I've come to understand that that machine learning sentiment is pretty rubbish at determining whether or not something is good or bad. It just never... Uh, our English language is far too wonderful uh, for anyone <laughs> yep. to nail it down. It's not comparable, but you can work out the emotional state of people by the words that they use. Mm. And so actually what you can find out is if people are angry, yeah. if people are sad about something, if they're irritated or if they're happy or joyful, or you know, you can actually work this stuff out. And, and, and brilliantly, there are, you know, wonderful machine learning algorithms that will help you do that at scale. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in terms of that, then, I mean, what what is, how do you practically listen to social media? So if you're a big brand that has a lot of customers and there's a lot of noise out there, and I, I accept your point entirely about spurious accuracy of machine learning and, and sort of thinking about the, the emotional stuff. And I, I find that just reading you know, 500 tweets or whatever will tell you more about stuff because you just get a sense of what's going on with a brand and what people are saying about it. But so how do you make sense of all of that then? I mean, um, you sort of say people don't use sentiment necessarily, but how, how do you do it then? Is there a tool that you can use now? I know it used to be things like Radian 6 used to be out there a very long time ago when I first started doing this stuff. But how, how do you do it? I mean, so we use Brandwatch. I, I have to say I'm obsessed with Brandwatch, partly because it's the most flexible tool, has amazing AI laid across it, which which does a lot of the grunt work for you. There is no way I could I categorically tell you you can do a true listening exercise without a bit of technology to help you. No. It is, it, there's just no physical way you can get through that number of tweets and instas and no. posts and link, all of that stuff. It's just too much data. You would just fall over. It would take you years, and by the time you'd actually done it manually, the the moment would have passed. Move on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so categorically, you need a tool. Okay. But more importantly than the tool, you need somebody who understands your business your marketing, your customer service, who looks at the data, the insights, and there is a great deal more insights. We write a lot of reports, which we give away, which look at certain industries. So we've done one on insurance. We've done one on why Christmas was trending in July. We did one on barbecues. You know, we, we write all these reports. And that is because we can see these swathes of changes. Mm, mm. And if you can ride that, you can you know, like a like a wave, mm. you suddenly get the you, you catch that perfect wave. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get our clients to catch the perfect wave, the sea change or the momentum of intent to purchase or the momentum in terms of trust. Whatever it is, that's where we're putting our clients on the front of that wave. Then you can understand things, not just the very basics. And I would consider these basics like, you know, volume of mentions, share of voice, all of these things. That's 
basic, basic stuff. The mm. really interesting thing is to look at your industry. How do people talk about your brand and other brands in that category? Where is that excitement being led? Is it, I mean, to give you an example, on barbecues, for instance, actually the biggest conversation is around condiments. So where are those condiment brands? Yeah. You know, the debate is still on. Is it coal or is it is it the gas barbecue? Yet the barbecue companies fail miserably to actually engage in these conversations right. and explain the value of whatever type of barbecue they've got. Insurance, we spotted a trend that is really unusual that I've not seen in the insurance market, which is that so last year, people were not buying insurance on price, according to social media. Not all of them. Some of them, of course, they were. But there was a nugget of people who were buying because of clarity of policy. Mm -hmm. And they were sharing that. And they were going, mm -hmm. well, at least I understand what I'm buying. And yeah. the reason I suspect, and this is just me now extrapolating, is that people had more time. Mm. They were anxious about insurance because the world had suddenly got terribly uncertain. They wanted mm. certainty that they were protected. And so the policy mattered. And, the, and those brands that had very clear descriptors and policy descriptors and went out with a message saying, we don't, you know, wrap up our policy in all sorts of terms. We make it simple for you. We're the ones that were firing on all cylinders. Right. Interesting. And it's interesting. The barbecue example is brilliant for bringing that to life, actually. I, I totally understand what you're saying now, which is it's it's about getting involved in that conversation, understanding where that ebb and flow is, and then placing yourself within that and, and trying to maybe even participate in the conversation in some way that's useful for the consumer. Yeah. Okay. And let me just, if I may, talk about paid social. You've used the phrase a couple of times, and I've got to be honest with you, whilst, whilst I kind of understand at a one-sentence level what he means by it, perhaps you could just explain what the phenomenon of paid social is and, and how it works. So when we started in social media, the, you could put a post out and people would like it and everybody would see it. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what we consider an organic post. And the reason is everybody see it is, is the algorithms would serve it to everyone, including the yep. people that followed you. Now it doesn't even serve it to the people that follow you. No. <laughs> okay. No. So the reality is that all of the social networks are a pay-to-play platform, and they will somehow strangle any other form of – they all do it in just slightly different ways. They will strangle your organic there's all the mechanical reasons behind it, which, of course, they want to make money. But there's also another reason, which is that there are so many brands trying to communicate with so many people that, in a way, in order to control some of the feeds so that people aren't getting 30,000 messages from alcohol brands or, you know, or insurance brands every single day of their lives and so therefore leave the social network, is that you have to bid price on paid. And you're paid is not just a performance tool. It can be as in lead gen or, or acquisition. Mm -hmm. It is also a retention tool. Basically, you have to pay to do something in it, whatever it is your ambition is. Let's put it this way. We believe so strongly that paid is part of what you do in social, that we won't work with a client that won't use paid. Right. Because it just we're just taking money off them. We can do some lovely creative yeah. We're just going to take money off them and produce nothing of impact. Superman reach. Right. We, we get really rich, but the client will end up with nothing of value. And, okay. and, and so pursuing an organic only strategy is 
throwing money down the drain. Okay, interesting. And again, just to be absolutely clear for people that don't understand this stuff, so you're talking about what pay-per-click type stuff where you're you're bidding effectively for traffic to come to your site by certain search terms or how does it work or is it advertising? So it's not quite performance PPC AdWords. Think of it more like a combination. So we target against audiences and that we can set the objective for those audience to raise awareness, so impressions and reach, which is what you want to do. You want to get mm-hmm. reach first, the top of funnel, and then you'll want things like learn more. So you might want them to end up on landing pages, but you may also, there are many ad sets in social networks that allow people to learn more, like instant experiences in Facebook. And so we're now shifting through the consideration phase. And then you can do the buy, but the buy does also does not require you to leave social media. So all the consumer sites allow you to buy in channel. So there is absolutely no reason you, you can't do You can do because social is this leaky, oily thing. Mm-hmm. It actually plays through the whole funnel. You wouldn't want to do all your marketing in social media all the way through that funnel. What you want to do is work out how it fits into the mix and how, whether or not you want to drive traffic to your website and where you want to drive them to and stop driving them to your homepage. If you're talking about you know, car insurance, they should be driven to the car insurance page, whether that's discussing why your car insurance is better or whether or not it's the quote page. What it shouldn't do is just drive to the homepage so they have to go and find it because people's behavior on social is a is a click quite quickly with a thumb. Yep. And guess what they do? They click quite quickly away if they don't mm. see what mm. actually mirrors what they see in their advertising. So the advertising units are a whole variety and can include hashtags and keywords and things like this. But what you're trying to do is, is build up the, – the principle of social advertising is about being relevant – So if I am targeting families with car insurance, I'm going to look at maybe, you know, I will look at what the listening tells me and say it tells me that one of the biggest challenges is is SUVs and the switch from diesel to whatever, right, and how that's embedded. So we might do a piece around that, which then leads to an element that says that if this changes, the insurance covers it. Or if this doesn't change, this is what you need to do. And you can switch it quickly when you go to an e-car or whatever it is. My point being is that you can make that change. But it doesn't have to even be that specific. So we work with Autotrader to draw in a new audience. Autotrader's audience are really quite petrol heady and they love their cars. But actually, you know, you may have seen a suffete of a challenger brands appear on the scene. So the youngsters like Cinch and so forth that have just appeared out of nowhere. And they wanted to attract a, a different audience, a younger audience, to remind them that Autotrader's been around for years and knows its stuff. Right. Uh, and so we did a campaign based on something that was very pop culture orientated based on RuPaul and all the fun with drag queens and uh, and did a drag race, which was around targeting a new audience through social media that would get on board, would check out the value in the auto trader site. And that was married alongside the fact that they ran amazing advertising campaigns on day. So we could be slightly tongue in cheek, Yeah, could play to that. That is a really nice example of how a brand can use social to even stretch its legs into new audiences. Okay. 
Okay, interesting. But well, a really interesting point I'm taking away from that, and it's certainly something I'm going to think about from my own organization's perspective, is is if you're not paying in some way, somewhere, the chances are the algorithms are going to be downgrading the relevance of your content compared to those that are. Is that, is that a reasonable summary? Yeah. yeah, and ultimately you want reach. You know, yeah. you speak to anyone who works in the industry and they will say you reach is your primary target because – too much fiddling around with bottom of the funnel is a law of diminishing returns, isn't it? Uh, it uh. The pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller and harder and harder. And you move into acquisition only, not retention. You start to churn becomes your biggest problem. Whereas if you start top of funnel and move your way down, you are much more likely to then consider loyalty and retention as part of that program of building trust and purpose into the way that you communicate. Interesting. Thank you for that. And can I just switch to this B2B versus B2C debate? And the reason why I call it a debate is, um, and I kind of mentioned it at the beginning, I mean, a lot of the work that we do is in B2B. And I've had so many conversations that talk about customer experience not really being part of a B2B consideration. And then social media gets wrapped into the same conversation. And, and I, I mean, I'm guessing... That's nonsense. I mean, it, it, it clearly can play a huge role in a, in a relationship management or indeed just the, the way in which you portray your brand. I mean, do you even view them differently? I mean, I'm guessing the techniques are differently, but is it true to say that social media is, is equally as big a part of B2B as it is B2C or indeed maybe even more so in some respects? I'd say even more so. I mean, I'll give you an example, Neil, 50% of our client base is B2B. And the reason is these are not necessarily forward thinking they just understand that people buy value and they buy because of relationships yeah so even the smallest of thing that you purchase whether it's you know paper clips you know within business is built around a relationship that you have now that relationship could be I know if I buy that from Amazon it's easy that's my relationship all the way through to the bigger stuff where you're kind of going I need to build a relationship. And we are, if you do not have a social media campaign, you have made your salespeople half as effective. And the, the rationale is you're right. The campaign changes. So you build trust and awareness and thought leadership through social and the, the broader stuff. But you also create a place for your subject matter experts and your sales teams to be able to advocate for the brand. Right. So that they can make those connections. And I, I hasten to add not all those connections are on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> we find Facebook is actually a cracking tool in which to mm. run things like video interviews with experts. A great place to promote further campaign work like webinars or events or white papers. My point being is that you have to start before you decide which channel you're on when you're B2B, where your audience is and mm. what mindset they're in. Because, mm. you know, I don't quite know where this belief came from that we turn our B2B heads off when we're in a consumer mode, because we don't. And if it's positioned in the right way, when I'm you know, chatting to my friends on Facebook and something of business relevance comes up to me, I'll bookmark it or I'll go and check it out. You know, one of those two or three things that I'll go and do. Mm. So the reality is actually that's what how everyone behaves. And we, we did a report very recently looking at how the C-suite buys technology. 
And it is extraordinary how many of the C-suite are on social media and how impacted they are by the conversations that happen there. And if you have a long bid process to purchase in B2B, the nudge and nurture, which is what your campaign really should focus on between your, your real people and your your marketing, the nudge nurture is what will keep them warm and on side till by the time the proposal hits desks, the bid hits the desk, they know you inside and out, they've bought into you and they'll find a way to make it work. You know, that is the sweet spot of B2B on social. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. This is not all about LinkedIn then. <laughs> no. <laughs> Key message. Uh, and I'm being deliberately facetious there. I mean, I, we use LinkedIn a lot, but um, I, I obviously get that. But I mean, that's quite a leap of imagination, I think, for some people. Um, and it's not, again, not, not missing to be um, dissing those people that think that way. But I, I think, you know, the, the idea of leveraging Facebook in you know, you know, a way that actually would participate in a long-term even a you know a long industrial sales process, for example, and you talked about buying paper kits, procurement, that sort of stuff. I mean, that's that's fascinating, very interesting. The thing is, what where we find B two B starts to switch its game is when the disruptive brands come along. Right. The disruptive brands use social like it was just part of the mix. They don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that then they all turn and go, "Oh my God, we should be doing something," you know. I shouldn't have got my niece to do social media in between her university degree. We actually need someone to do this properly. That's at the point people pay attention. And that's a shame because they're allowing them in in the first place and they're allowing them to grab market share. Yeah, yeah. When they should be blocking out because they've got the brand already there. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. interesting. And if I may start turning to the, the sort of internal structures around how you manage social media. So just sort of, first of all, more broadly, again, let me give you an example. I, I, I can think of numerous occasions when we've gone into a contact area, contact management area, contact centers. And when you start sort of talking about where the different things are, the social team will be tucked away, literally over in the corner or in sometimes a different room. Uh, and they'll be completely separate uh, and even down to the point of if they're managing interactions they might be restricted in terms of the interactions they can actually physically manage because people are worried about the risk of perhaps their and we'll come on to sort of how you train people in a minute but the, the risk of someone saying something wrong they want to keep it really narrow ah i don't want to preempt the answer but i'm assuming that in in your view that might be a, a mistake in terms of not trying to integrate it but uh, I, I guess you would have seen the same thing really in terms of the clients that you've you've been in i mean uh, how do you best set yourself up for social servicing, but also social comms internally within the business? So in terms of social servicing, which is slightly different from social comms, yes, a a separate department is a terrible thing and templated responses is even worse. There is a, a more evil version of that and that is to use automated responses and there is a rather well known fashion brand who does that, who has come a cropper several times and still doesn't seem to have impacted the fact that they continue to use what is a fairly shonky automated service but the best way so we've worked with a flower delivery brand i'm not going to tell you who they are but they're fairly large and we all think of them when we're in the uk and they they were really smart so the way to do it within customer service is to train everybody 
And yes, you create this kind of overarching, if somebody says this, this is what you do. If somebody says this, this is what you do. This is what you say. So you do need a flow chart, a decision tree with some of the right wording in it. But if you train your staff well enough, guess what? Good customer service people know how to talk. Yeah, that it's it's weird that we don't trust our own teams, but you have to train them well, then they will do it. Then what you do is you have one or two or three social media champions okay. within that. Now they're part of that integrated team, but they may well check. For instance, if a celebrity says, My dishwasher has exploded you may rise that up through the ranks and say, This person has a lot of influence, lots of followers. We need to fix this problem fast mm. so that they they say some good things. And as evil as that sounds for the general consumer, the reality is when people complain, it's not just the complaint. It's not like customer service. It's not just the complaint. They will hop channels. So mm. they'll jump from Reddit to Facebook to Twitter, regardless of whether you're there. Doesn't mm. matter if you're not there, they'll just do that. They'll jump from all of these points, which means mm. you now have a multi channel point of negativity, which is completely public. Yeah. And so that negativity is you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it if you are going to build a strong, loyal brand following. There isn't any other option unless you're stacking it high, selling it cheap, and you don't give a damn about churn or reputation then there is no alternative. And it is much better to get the whole of your customer service team on board with this because it, if things went really wrong, a great yep. example will be the airlines in March mm-hmm. who were 24-7 responding to things. Yep. If you can expand that team, yep. you could, it becomes much easier because everybody right. understands what they're doing. Uh, and I know, for instance, O2, do a, a Telefonica do a fantastic job of this. They make sure everybody is trained so that they can scale up and down. So if there's an outage and you suddenly can't get onto your O2, then actually your social media responses will be managed by a broader, broader team than is normally working on a day-to-day basis because everybody is trained. Right. Okay. And I mean, in terms of training, I mean, I've seen lots of different ways of doing things and and governance things that sit over the top of it. I mean, you talked about templated responses there, which is a, an interesting way of dealing with a, a channel that has so much inherent flexibility. But I mean, how do you train somebody in social media? If I could ask, you know, really get, I know it's detailed, but I think people would be really interested. I mean, do you have academies? And I've heard of terrible phrase but playbooks you know where you've got kind of like a really broad rules book that that tries to cover every scenario or do you show people best practice or do you just give them a set of principles and tell them to crack on i mean how how do you best do it in my experience there, there's uh, by the way the government has a great playbook i'll send you the link after so okay. share it in the, podcast. the problem with playbooks is like any other rule book because it's like crisis documents nobody bloody reads them and if they read them they forget about them afterwards and they they used to collect dust in one of those lever arch files somewhere on somebody's desk now they just sit you know buried on someone's desktop they never look at it ever mm-hmm. so playbooks are terrible the reality is we want to change employee behavior Yep. So while academies are great for your maybe for the basics for your junior people who may be or, or people who've never worked in social media or have never even tweeted a tweet. Right. So the basics you would want to cover off quite quickly. But actually, the best way to do it is in-house training. And that can actually be done 
by it, your in-house teams. It's And you could do a train the trainers. You don't have to go all explosive. But the reality is what's much better is an evolving training scheme. It's like any good behavior. You have to do it over a, while, a period of time. And to give you an example, in your first instance, you might say, here is the basic, not quite a template, the basic things you should respond to. So if somebody says they've got a delivery problem, this is the message we're trying to get to them. And, and at first, people will be nervous and they'll just put out that message with a bit of, you know, and this is, you know, Mary and this is our response, you know, type thing. But as they get more confident with that ongoing training and confidence and best practice being discussed weekly, monthly within the business, there will be greater confidence in doing more personable responses ones that make you feel like this person really cares yeah and that presumably that's when you see some of the stories that sometimes make it out into the press or indeed and they go viral on social media itself where you see humorous exchanges i mean i remember one i think it was sainsbury's where there was a uh, for whatever the reason the the um the customer was throwing all sorts of, I can't think of the right word, but strange analogies but with the with food, if you like, and, and therefore um, the person responding had obviously been given the authority to kind of respond in the same way and, and doing it that way. And it was a really nice sort of exchange. And you see lots of examples of that? Yeah, I mean, Sainsbury's did a fantastic job against those that were unhappy about their DNI policy, their diversity and inclusion policy. Okay. Yeah. Where that example of a response where they went, well, go shop somewhere else. <laughs> Not only did that balloon for them and buy them many, many more kudos points, particularly the reference to gammons, which was hysterical, but every other supermarket started to join in. Eventually, they clubbed together and ran a TV campaign to say, we we support diversity and inclusion. So, yeah, tough. <laughs> Somewhere else. Go shop. I don't know, wherever. Go dig. Yeah. Go hunt for your food. Um, but, uh, but the principle is that there you have a customer service team and a marketing team who understand their audience and understand their business and their business had principles and it has personality and it will stand by its values yeah that that's worth spade loads in today's modern age because that's what our customer is looking for really interesting because that just comes back to a theme that just keeps coming up which is Clarity of purpose, clarity of personality and the values by which you're operating in, getting your staff engaged in that so they understand it and feel empowered to do things in line with that. And then it becomes natural. And it sounds to me from everything we've talked about here that whereas there might be some different techniques, social is no different in terms of managing experience in that way. Can I just ask one final area? So I'm, I'm conscious of uh, that we've been rabbiting away for ages, but it's really interesting to me. What about influencers? I mean, this is uh, it's a relatively new phenomenon in terms of, if you like, the evolution as, as far as, I know it's been around a while, but in terms of people using influencers for brand building and marketing, I mean, how is that evolving? Is that something that's getting bigger and bigger actually behind the scenes in terms of usage of, of influencers or has, has it had its day? Because I know there's been a few high profile hiccups, if you like, along the way when people have tried that strategy yeah <laughs> i have quite a negative union of, of of influencers i'm afraid and not them themselves mm. but the impact that they truly have firstly to do this under the right regulations which for many fs and b2e brands there will be 
regulations that they need to comply with, whether it's CAP or ASA or their own industry regulations, yeah. is actually very challenging. And in reality, if you're paid in any shape or form with either a gift or money to promote something, you must declare it, number one. Yeah. Number two yeah. is, yes, influencers can derail and go do something that is against your values and and situation. However, there is one element you see that I feel very strongly about, and that is that when, when we started Immediate Vision, we did blogger relations, and it was back in the day where really the people that were blogging in business were real experts, you know, quite old gits like me, <laughs> who kind of had been around and done this. And now, of course, everybody and their 12-year-old is an influencer. It is incumbent on us as business people to check and verify the influencer. Mm. Do they actually have influence or are they a Kardashian that charges you 25 grand for a tweet and nobody buys anything that they promote unless they promote their own stuff? So it, it has no value. It has no value to the business. Mm. Or more importantly, are they uh, influencer not only that will have impact on my business, but will they be an influencer that fits our values? Mm. And how can I bring them closer? I don't want them just to write an Instagram post. I don't want them to just put a tweet out. I want to bring them into my business. And, And many years ago, we ran a campaign with Sony Europe, where we we were promoting their new range of cameras, their new range of DSLRs that had a chip inside that allowed you to take photographs at twilight in, in low light levels, basically. So dawn and twilight. Mm-hmm. And the campaign was called Twilight Football. And because they were sponsoring the football that year, we actually went out to the photography experts and called them Twilight Hunters. And there were only 12 of them. Only right. 12. The ROI, you can go and see it on our website because we've got the example, but the ROI on that was phenomenal. It knocked it out of the park. And the reason is these were actually respected influencers. Mm. They yeah. had influence, not based on volume, but, but based on really old-fashioned PR techniques of lobbying, which yeah. doesn't actually require them to have loads of friends, but actually requires them to, when they say something, other people follow them. People listen, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the only people I know who do really good influencer discovery is Analytica, who are a consultancy and platform that allows you to find people who really, truly have influence. Yeah, interesting. And just a, a sub point there, if I may, which it sort of just reminds me, I, I, I didn't ask you earlier. So you mentioned regulations there and, and staying within the regulations. I mean, we, we work a lot in financial services. We work a lot in pharma, for example, both heavily, heavily regulated sectors, not just in the sphere of influencers, but just generally. I mean, uh, presumably... You know, our conversation about playbooks and things, I guess a lot of regulated industries ground themselves in that as a, as a means of security. But I mean, is there, a, is there a better way of managing the risk that you run around regulatory hiccups and, and staying within the regulations? Or is that just purely about creating a simple set of do's and don'ts for people so that they know what they can and can't do? How do you, how do you manage that? I think for most of those that are heavily regulated, there'll be a compliance department team or person what you should do with social is make it run through a tool which requires an improved approval process, get our teeth in. So a tool like Sprinkler or Content Cal where people put the posts up and they can put them up from different areas and therefore your public posts will require approval. On the customer service end, you're going to have to pull people out of social to have conversations, but most people within 
finance and pharma will will understand why those conversations yeah. are private. So yeah. so there isn't I don't think there's a big resistance from your customer base. But how you then pull them out. So you wouldn't offer advice, but how you then say, don't worry about this, don't panic, talk to us type thing. The language you use in order to bring them to you yeah. in a more private setting where you can manage your regulations as you do with email and then the other communication you have with the with the customer. And then there's the part about employees, and that's probably the only territory where you have to go, not only do we have to coach people, but we need them to sign up to our compliance, that what they say is not outside of this. You need to make sure that everything is fixed so that people have some idea of what they can and can't say. But you would not open up social media for people to talk about your business to everyone. No. But it might be your sales teams. It might be your subject matter experts, all of whom will be of a seniority that you can actually do something about that and actually yep. restrict some of that conversation. So it's, 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 it's I'm trying to give a very generic response. No, no, I understand what you're saying. Particular. Yeah, checks and balances, screening in the right appropriate areas. But at the same time, if people are grounded in a set of understanding of what you're about as a business, then you, to a certain extent, over a period of time, it sounds to me, and certainly I've seen it work quite well, you know, people gradually kind of get it and they just instinctively know how far they can go. It's a bit like in financial services, the line between giving an opinion about something and when you move into advice, it's kind of like this, you click over into a regulatory setting at that stage and walking the line's quite a skill. I mean, it sounds like social is similar to that in a, in a regulated setting. So fantastic. Thank you for that. If I may, just a couple of quick fire questions then. I asked this to everybody and um, just as a bit of light relief because uh, I've grilled you to death there and um, I've, I've got a lot of points here about our own social media strategy, which I'm going to go and uh, take away. But so can you tell me, what, what do you think being truly customer centric means? I would say that is being relevant to me. As much as okay. we hate the word personalization, the more relevant you are to me, the more I think you care about me. Yeah, clear. Thank you. I'm not surprised you said that either, given what you do. But um, no, very, very interesting. And can you think of an experience then that you've had that really defines fantastic customer experience, maybe in that context or any other context, really? Yeah, I just bought a Simba mattress. And oh my God, okay. they're amazing. And I, don't, I didn't particularly do this via social, although... Interestingly enough, when I first started investigating it, I did ask people on social and lots of people came forward. So they generated a lot of advocacy. But their website, their email exchanges, the way that they talked to me, I didn't they didn't over communicate. They didn't send me an email every five minutes, but they got the concerns of a consumer when buying a new mattress. Because you're absolutely, let's face it, you're absolutely utterly terrified. Yeah, you yeah. can spend a small fortune on a mattress, get on it and go, I can't Does, sleep. It doesn't work, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's a huge, you see, and it, no matter what, and then, oh, you know, we, we can return it in 100 days. Well, you know, returning a mattress, you know, I'll never get it back in the box. So, but they address all of the concerns. They understand their customers. And this is what I mean about relevance and understand. Mm. Really got where the pain points in purchasing a mattress, particularly one online. And then on the night we got it, you have to you know, let these things rest so they poof up. And I put a tweet saying, I'm just waiting to go to bed to try it out, you know, but I'm having to wait. <laughs> and bless them, they responded to me and said, did he have a good night's sleep? That, again, they haven't over-communicated to me. Right. They haven't, like, rushed and asked for a testimonial and they haven't, you know. But what they've done is understood the measured purchase of quite an expensive high-ticket item. Yeah. 
Yeah, real empathy, real empathy. Fantastic. And I know you wouldn't anyway, but without mentioning the brand, maybe, or the organisation, what about a terrible experience that you think epitomises the opposite? I... Yes. I mean, the world is a bit crazy right now, but I would definitely say my constant irritation is the way the airline industry and there are a couple of brands fail to recognize that we're human beings at the other side of this. The tweets and posts and frustrations require a response, not silence. And silence is never an answer. And they really have to step up i still i'm still yet to see an airline brand actually nail their social media or nail their purpose they say one thing and do another all mm. the time mm. and i know it's been pretty grim for them this year and it's made it much worse for them this year because they've obviously had lots and lots of problems beyond just the obvious one that we can't travel they've also had refunds and and things corridors opening and shutting and all that sort of stuff i get that so i'm not even talking about this year i'm talking yeah. about you know the years before where where they are so disjointed and, and unnecessarily so um and i think shame on them really because that loyalty does matter not everybody buys on price no, absolutely. And it's amazing how many times I ask that question of people, the travel sector generally crops up because uh, it's so emotive. And then final question, I promise. What's the one thing that you've learned in your career that you could never have learned at a business school? This is quite a challenging one. I don't think you can learn how fast the world moves and how to change to accommodate it. Because I, I grew up without a mobile phone. I grew up in a, in a world where there was no such thing as digital, except for the Casio watch I had on my wrist. And, uh, you know, and, and the world changes and it changes really fast. And in business school, you're taught this is the way it works. Right. This is the way this is the way it has to be. This is the way all businesses, what you realize as you get older is that those are frameworks, they're the mm. foundations, but everything mm. changes around it. Foundations mm. are still good and strong and valuable, but if you can't twist and bend, if you can't modernize, if you can't stay on top of it, which is where I fear so many traditional brands are, you know, who are just kind of going, oh my God, we need to do digital transformation now, even though people have been saying to them, you need to transform your business now. They're only just getting around to it because they have to. And you kind of go, well, you know, this is poor business decision making yeah. in, in reality. Um, so I don't think they teach that. I don't think they teach you to take the initiative. Interesting. Thank you for that. Well, we've reached the end. Um, I, I'm going to show you. I've got a whole page of notes here that I've taken, which I, I'm going to uh, shamelessly take away a whole load of ideas and thoughts that you've given me. And I hope um, people listening have also taken some great stuff away. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you properly again after a few years. And um, well, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Fantastic. Thank you, Neil. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.